Welcome, I'm Larry Olson, and what's on your mind? Once set, it delivers your life. To change the outcomes we want, we must change the plays we're running. Join us at Mindset Playbook with real people, real talk, for real insight. Today's episode is sponsored by Apernio, an achievement acceleration company whose approach to professional development enables clients to gain insights and perspectives to live, work, and engage with more success. Well, welcome to Mindset Playbook, and thank you so much for tuning in today, wherever you may be. And uh, I've got something that I think you're going to find very relevant, um, very, very current, and um, I think something that is going to be impacting all of us. Not only has it already, but it's, it's the future. So with everything that's going on in our world relative to climate and clean energy, I've invited Scott Melby, a 36-year veteran of the nuclear energy industry, to give us his perspective, as well as bringing us up to date on the latest news in nuclear energy. Scott has held leadership positions in major uranium mining companies, as well as industry-wide organizations. He serves as Executive Vice President of Uranium Energy Corporation, a U.S. uranium mining and exploration company, and Chief Executive Officer of Uranium Royalty Corporation, the first and only pure play uranium royalty and streaming company in the uranium industry. Scott was formerly the chair of the board of governors of the world nuclear fuel market and is currently president of the Uranium Producers of America. He's a graduate of Arizona State University and serves as advisor to the Colorado School of Mines Nuclear Engineering Program. Scott, welcome to Mindset Playbook, and thank you for investing your time to share with our listeners your leadership strategies as well as insights into nuclear energy. Why don't we get started based on your in-depth background in uranium and give us some insights on what exactly is uranium and what is it used for? Well, great. And Larry, thank you for having me on today, and it's a pleasure to be with your listeners and viewers. Um, yeah, I've been in the uranium and nuclear energy industry now for 30, going on 37 years, and uh, we're probably more excited today than ever uh, mm. of where we're at with nuclear energy's role in a cleaner energy future. But in answer to your question, uranium is an energy commodity, just like uh, coal or, or gas or, or other ways to, to make uh, energy or electricity. Um, what's really got folks excited about uranium and nuclear, again, is the energy density that's provided by uranium. It takes a relatively small amount of, of uranium, which is mined uh, out of the earth and, uh, and, uh, refined and, and uh, refined into pellets and fuel assemblies in a nuclear power plant. You'll get more energy out of a small package from, from uranium than you will in any other energy commodity. We've always known that it's, uh, it's, uh, and nuclear energy is a very resilient uh, uh, energy source, reliable, Unlike wind and solar, which may only run 25, 30% of the time, our plants run 95% of the time, only shutting down every 18, 24 months to refuel. So all of these aspects of, of nuclear and especially the, the carbon-free clean air aspects of, of uranium is really causing folks to, to really look again at, at, at how do we apply nuclear as an important part of our energy mix going forward. All right. So with... Um 
with the the whole concept of 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 new clean energies and the old old mindset if you will of um it it not being safe and you know those half lives are forever and mm-hmm. how do you dispose of it and all of these things that i think have kind of taken the focus off of what's really important certainly we don't want to contaminate our contaminate ourselves mm-hmm. bring us up to speed on on just how clean is it and where are we now on on is it yucca um the storage site yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, you're absolutely right, Larry. I think the industry's done a, a very poor job of communicating these strengths that we bring. And, you know, it doesn't help too that, um, you know, uh, back in the seventies and movies like the China syndrome and things like this have kind of caused people's imaginations to, to really, uh, take the, the dialogue around nuclear to, to a complete place, which is very different from the reality um, you know, as we stand today, we've, we've used nuclear energy since uh, to make electricity uh, since the 1950s. Um, it stands as the safest uh, form of energy in terms of, of uh, injuries or fatalities of any energy uh, source that, that, that man knows today. And uh, waste, which is often held up as, as a major impediment, um, you know, we've been the most responsible energy industry in the fact that we've contained and stored every gram of waste we've ever produced since the 1950s. We haven't pumped it out of a smokestack. We haven't dumped it in a river or lake or ocean. And we've kept it to do one of two things, either reprocess that fuel and to make new fuel and and extend the the energy efficiency of the uranium or store it in a permanent geologic repository in a very uh, high uh, tech engineered facility in a, in a geologic formation that hasn't changed for a million years. So either one of these are not a, a scientific or technical challenge. It's really been a political uh, challenge to cite the facility. Uh, Yucca Mountain, as you mentioned, in Nevada has been studied with uh, a lot of uh, dollars uh, put into that site. Uh, you have, you know, 50, uh, uh, sorry, 49 states in favor of, of using Yucca Mountain as, as that repository, but you've had politicians in the past who have opposed that coming to Nevada. Um, you know, again, I think uh, if we look at the science uh, and technology around this waste uh, repositories and, or, you know, eventually retrieving that waste to recycle uh, uranium into new fuel in the future, uh, I think we'll come as a society to a real uh, optimal solution. But we've probably been the most responsible of any any industry in that regard. And uh, and again, the energy that we we produce uh, being completely carbon free and uh, and not emitting, uh, you know, just I think uh, the the debate is interesting. We could get into the whole climate change and man made climate change and and carbon reduction. Uh, I think if you're uh, someone living in Beijing or Delhi or Mumbai, you're probably more concerned just about clean air, pollution-free air. And uh, that doesn't, uh, you don't have to wait and see whether the earth will go up or down a a degree uh, in in warming uh, if you can't breathe the air today in a lot of those major cities. So if they're going to grow their economies and uh, provide, there's never been a growing economy in human history that hasn't uh, been accompanied by an increase in energy use we need to find a way to deliver that electricity um, to society without adding to the pollution and, and carbon impacts. So, wh- why would what would be the holdback for China, which 
seems to have an unlimited amount of financial resources based on how they structure their government and whatnot, not be leaders in nuclear energy? Yeah, they, they, well, they really are. Um, and and their are. growth is quite phenomenal uh, today. Um, I think the installed nuclear capacity of Chinese nuclear power plants will reach 70 gigawatts uh, within uh, the next three years and exceed the installed capacity of the U.S. nuclear power program, which is about 94 reactors um, within this decade. And, you know, it'll still only be, uh, you know, 10% of their electricity supply. They have that much um, in terms of total energy demand in, in, in a growing economy, but they are very much embracing and, and building reactors. Um, and I think it's surprising to folks to hear that uh, the, the robust growth in our industry can be measured by the numbers of reactors that have been added to the grid in the last eight, nine years. We're now up over 54 uh, very large scale reactors. Many of them have been in, in China, India, but we now have 30 different countries uh, building nuclear power plants uh, to, to produce electricity in their country. So China is, a, is, a, is definitely a leader and continuing uh, to, to build those plants as a way to deliver clean electricity and uh, serve as a bit of a stimulus in construction um, in, in many areas where they're still relying on, on very dirty coal-fired uh, power generation, especially in some of the interior cities of, of China. Is that, is that because it's, um, it's easier for them or it's less expensive for them or, or, you know, what is the holdback of taking some of these areas and putting plants in? Yeah, I mean, I think the Chinese, um, you know, they are a, a command economy. And so when they set, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party five-year plans that are, up, you know, updated every few years, um, uh, they, you know, are, are emphasizing uh, energy projects and uh, nuclear is prioritized. So they line up the the educational and, and skilled trades needed to, to advance these projects. Uh, they're citing them uh, in much faster uh, way than we are in the West. I mean, obviously we go through much more of a democratic process. We want to cite plants in a place where communities want them, not we don't just stick uh, communities with, with major uh, projects like that. So, you know, they, they do have some advantages. The construction, um, they're getting very good, um, like we were. Um, in the 70s and 80s with Westinghouse and GE, we could build nuclear power plants, uh, you know, quite quickly with the, with the sort of uh, skills and knowledge that we had acquired. And now countries like Korea, uh, China, Russia are, are building plants and building them on schedule and on budget. Uh, we just saw the, the country of United Arab Emirates uh, build four reactors on, on schedule and on budget. And this is a country that has enormous oil and gas, gas uh resources, but uh, are, are choosing to produce electricity uh, from nuclear power and preserve the oil and gas for export markets and, uh, and produce cleaner electricity in their country. So we're seeing it as a, a very widespread, uh, you know, the, I mentioned Russia, their uh, atomic energy company is building um, reactors in 12, I think it's over 30 reactors in 12 different countries today. So um, it is quite uh, widespread. I think in the Developed economies, uh, we've seen the, the growth rate slow in Western Europe and the United States because we've kind of been blessed with energy abundance and uh, with the onset of 
of fracking and directional drilling. And we've been blessed with uh, oil and gas in, in our case in the United States. Um, we've also seen, you know, wind and solar be subsidized to such degrees that it's really damaged sort of the deregulated market structures. So the nuclear power plants that we have in our grid are some of the cheapest sources of electricity we have. And as I mentioned, the most reliable, uh, but they've been really uh, kind of struggling against the, the 30 mile head start that wind and solar gets. But I think we're seeing that change dramatically in states like Pennsylvania, Illinois, uh, where they're modifying those uh, sort of dysfunctional marketplaces to value clean energy and reliable energy. But, um, you know, I think in, in developed markets like ours, we're also seeing the advancement of small modular and advanced reactors. These are not the 1500 megawatt massive power plants that are being built around the world. They're more the 1500 megawatt uh, reactors that look a lot more like the reactors we have in our aircraft carriers and submarines that can be built in factories, shipped on site, lower upfront capital, faster payback periods, and can coexist and and uh, uh, coexist on a grid that might be heavily burdened, I'd say, by intermittent renewables and can load follow in that manner. So, you know, a great example is uh, two weeks ago I was up in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, on uh, with the governor of Wyoming on the announcement of the sale of a reactor by TerraPower out of Seattle, Washington, which is Bill Gates' advanced reactor company that he started selling a reactor to his friend Warren Buffett, uh, who uh, owns Pacific Corp, uh, Rocky Mountain Power in, in uh, Wyoming, where they will site this 300 megawatt reactor on the location of a retiring coal-fired power plant. So I mean, that certainly touches all the buttons, whether you're environmentalist or capitalist, or you want just clean uh, energy and affordable 24-hour electricity, um, and you want to see some jobs replaced from retiring coal-fired power plants. This is a great example of what we're going to see uh, in the United States and around the world. The, the market for these uh, small and advanced reactors is really just an uh, incredible and, and growing market. What fantastic insights we are getting into in this episode. If this resonates with you and is provoking and of value, please consider the best-selling book of Get a Vision and Live It by your host, Larry Olson, at Apernio.com. His book has been an inspiration to many of Mindset Playbook's guests, and you'll find everything you need to live the best version of your life now. The results you'll get will absolutely amaze you. Find the book at apernio.com in the shop. And now let's get back. You won't want to miss what's to come in this episode of Mindset Playbook. Beautiful, beautiful. So are, is there still a reluctance, do you see, or, are, or has that mindset been changed regarding embracing nuclear power plants in the United States? Yeah, I think it has uh, changed. I mean, our, our uh, you know, our, like I said, our safety record of reactors that we're building in Western Europe, the United States, um, you know, I think the, the, the record stands for itself. Um, you know, there, there's always a, the, the saying, not in my backyard. But I think what we're finding is uh, communities that have hosted nuclear power stations um, have loved the jobs uh, the tax benefits and and the and the positive economic impact on their communities, and we really see it if a plant shuts down, is retired, reaches the end of its useful life, and is shut down, the communities really suffer. So I think mm. you'll have communities fighting to have these, uh, especially these small modular plants, if they can continue the economic and energy benefits of those nuclear power plants into the future. 
I think in Wyoming, you see the four communities that are uh, slated for this nuclear power plant are all fighting to get it located in their communities. So I think we are in a different phase. And let's face it, as a society, if we are going to, you know, I mean, in the European uh, community and certainly in the Biden administration, you know, if we're going to kind of put the boots to fossil fuels and not use coal and oil and gas the way we perhaps should be using, then you've got to come up with alternatives. We have to think about the 70% of the time that wind and solar doesn't run, and we've got to still keep the lights on in, in factories and homes around the country and around the world. And I think that's why nuclear is really getting, um, you know, a real boost in its prospects these days. So with the naysayers that, um, you know, they they had that documentary out not too long ago on Chernobyl and mm-hmm. and bringing up all the inconsistencies and the buffoonery that really went on, nobody wanting to admit there was a problem because they've yeah. been chastised by their leadership. Yeah. How do you how do you talk to people who still have that a Chernobyl could take place in the United States? Yeah. So the Chernobyl uh, accident was a was an old style Russian reactor which uh, we would never license or build in the United States or Western Europe or anywhere else. And it was just it was built on the, the, it was almost like building a sports car, you know, without having adequate brakes on it. And uh, so one, even Russia is not building those plants anymore. But I think the, the real lesson we learned there was uh, the, the way the government handled it and, and, and covered up the, the accident and was not forthcoming with information. And, you know, we're, uh, we're in the United States with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and and the regulatory bodies in, in Western Europe and elsewhere, uh, where we have a much greater safety culture and openness of information. And so, again, I don't think uh, you know we have to worry about uh, you know Chernobyl type uh, incident. I mean, our our, our big uh, incidents we've had in the West have been Three Mile Island and Fukushima. And while Fukushima, we just you know our our vision of of the horrible devastation of the tsunami and earthquake. Uh, no one was injured or killed by radiation from the reactor. And we kind of forget about that, that, um, you know, needless to say, uh, they could have done a lot more to provide backup power and keep that plant in a stable condition. But uh, really, uh, in terms of industrial accidents, uh, that probably ranks very low uh, on, on, the, on the global scale with no one injured or killed. So, yeah. uh, again, I think uh, uh, we've just got to look at the, at the, at the record. Uh, that nuclear has both safety and uh, operationally. I think you also see it too in, in public opinion polling, where recently I think 76% of Americans favor uh, nuclear energy as, as a way to deliver reliable electricity and clean electricity going forward. And that's up pretty considerably. We've always been at about 50%. You've had people either absolutely for nuclear and, and you've had people adamantly against it, but I think we're now beginning to see the public opinion really change. And again, I think it's, you've got to look at nuclear in terms of the alternatives. There's, there's no magic, uh, magic tree or unicorns that give us uh, energy. We need to produce it and produce a lot of it. Uh, if we're going to go to more computerization of society, if we're going to go to electric vehicles. Our electricity demand will likely have to double to, to meet these needs going forward. So not only do we have to deal with where we're at today, but where we're going. And I just, I hate to pick on you because you're in California. But, uh, you know, California wants to go to all electric vehicles by 2035, yet cannot deliver electricity reliably to businesses and, and homes 
in 2021. So I think we have some real serious issues that we have to deal with, with math and science and not ideology and, and kind of emotion. And I think that's where yeah. we're, we're seeing real progress. Well, I, and that's probably where the greatest challenge lies is the, you know, it, my generation is kind of, you know, coming up with the bring, bring brought up in Washington with Hanover and, and some oh. of the issues they had in storage and, or at least the perception that was created out to the public. Um, it was so, it was disappointing that there were so many naysayers, you know, that was like dealing with maybe 1% of the issues and, and all you hear it. And so you think it's such a major deal. But one of the things I think is happening that's positive too, is that graying out. I think there's a lot of people that are, that aren't even alive now or having a voice that had experienced that attitude. Mm -hmm. And when you get an attitude, I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's based on the truth or not. Right. We can see that in our own lives. You can get an attitude about an individual and whether they change in front of you or not as a material, you've still got your mind made up about them. Yep. So what, what are you most optimistic about in, in what you've seen in the transition of people now embracing over 70%, you know, of Americans are pro. Yeah. Well, I, you know, where I see it the most is I serve as an advisor to the Colorado School of Mines nuclear engineering program. And so I'll often uh, meet with parents and, and, and their uh, kids uh, as they're, they're coming out of, of high school or they're, or they're in university now and they're looking to go into advanced studies. And I'm seeing this younger generation one, very much questioning and want to know how everything works, but they do embrace technology and they do understand that uh, the computerization of everything and the electrification of everything, including transportation, is something they really believe strongly in. And again, whether some of the old people are still fighting the climate change argument or not, doesn't matter. You know, society is moving into a, a carbon free or a lower carbon future, and, and youth are really. Uh, recognizing that coming out of school and into the university years. And we're seeing people want to get into, especially these small modular and advanced reactors as a way to make an impact on, on, on society. And, you know, I mean, being able to deliver clean energy to countries in Africa or India, um, you know, in, in many cases, you know, the, the move by the Indians to, to really embrace nuclear energy you know, in China, it's to, to engine, it's the engine of their economy and keep things moving forward. For India, it's to deliver a basic uh, human need, which is electricity. I mean, there's millions of, of people in India that, that live without the equivalent of a light bulb in their home. Yeah. And how can you study homework at night if you're a kid, if, if you don't have electricity at night during the winter? And so we're seeing, you know, lives change because of, of, of energy. And this notion that we need to use less energy, I, I disagree with. I think we need to use more energy. Energy is provides um, you know a cleaner environment, can provide medical advances, can provide an education, everything else. So I think we've got to be able to deliver energy in a way that meets all those goals. And and I'm not saying nuclear is the answer to everything, but it can be a big component. I mean, in the United States, it's 55% of our carbon-free energy, even though it's only 20. Well only 20% of our, our electricity supplies. I think globally, nuclear is about 10% of our electricity supplies, but a full third of the carbon-free energy. So we're already uh, contributing quite a bit, which surprises people 
to look at those numbers, but the amount of growth um, really is something exciting and, and, and we need it. And we need to look at other energy forms too. I mean, we shouldn't stop looking at fusion and all the other ways, but as it stands today, we need nuclear energy. And if we go down this green energy path without nuclear, we kind of go the same path as Germany took 10, 15 years ago, where they wanted to be green. They threw hundreds of millions of euros at renewable energy, but they moved away from nuclear over, over this decade. And it's only resulted in electricity prices being 50% higher than neighboring France, which is 75% uh, nuclear. And most importantly, I think from the Germans is they've made no meaningful impact on carbon emissions over this period, which was the whole purpose of doing this in the first place. And so if Germany can't do it with hundreds of billions of euros investment, how do we expect China or India to do it? And we've got to, you know, we've got to provide nuclear uh, as, as, as part of that solution. And, and we're really excited that it's beginning to, you know, we're seeing politicians, uh, investment community, environmentalists, all kind of making 180 degree turns in some cases and, you know, previous opponents now being uh, uh, proponents uh, as opposed to opposing. So, um, you know, I, I saw it firsthand uh, having the, the real privilege to testify before the U.S. Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee five, six weeks ago in, in D.C. and speak to American nuclear leadership. And, uh, you know, I sat in front of a, uh, a committee of Republican and Democrat senators and was prepared for all kinds of difficult questions that might be thrown at me. But I saw from both sides of the aisle incredible support. And even those that haven't traditionally been pro-nuclear senators were asking really legitimate questions and good questions about, you know, how do we, you know, how do we regain this leadership? How do we produce more uranium, you know, in the United States? Uh, and how do we, you know, uh, build these reactors here and abroad? And so I'm very encouraged that we are in a period where we're actually an industry that is bipartisan which is very hard to, uh, to find many of those areas of cooperation these days. So Absolutely. we're embracing that. Um, it's, it's good to be loved by both sides of the aisle. And uh, so uh, I think it's an exciting time. That's pretty rare air. Yeah. Um, when people hear of nuclear, they, and I, I'm very pro nuclear, mm -hmm. by the way, but I've got to ask these questions. Yep. People hear of nuclear, they think of nuclear war. Mm -hmm. They think of arms race. They think of fusion and what happened, what could possibly happen. Mm -hmm. They think of a nuclear bomb, yep. comic. And, and these are such gladiator kind of terms. And sure. they've, as you said, they with, yep. with some of the movies that have been out there, they're, it's fun to take the wrong approach and then kind of popularize it. Yeah. So when you're sharing with people, how do you go about dispelling that and helping them understand the, and I don't know if it can, if it can be simplistic because mm -hmm. to me, it seems rather complicated to, to create fusion to begin with. It's not something yeah. you're going to do in your garage necessarily, or I'm not. Mm -hmm. how, how do you not so much dispel that, but replace yeah. it with the right information? Yeah, no, well, it, it goes back to the origins of nuclear energy and, it doesn't help that our technology was born out of the weapons uh, program, um, you know, and, and, and the development of the atomic bomb. But we, you know, you have to go back to Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1950 that started the Atoms for Peace, where there was a recognition that 
wow, the peaceful uses of nuclear energy in medicine, electricity, desalination of water, production of hydrogen, all these things far outweigh, you know, the, the weapons. And, and I think what you've seen in more recent years, and I've been directly involved in it, is we've actually seen nuclear disarmament between the United States and Russia result in the dismantling of nuclear weapons. And in fact, it was called the Swords to Plowshares, Megatons to Megawatts mm. program that saw 21,000 nuclear warheads in Russia dismantled and blended down from the very high enrichments. I mean, the enrichment levels that we need to make electricity in a power plant are five, six percent. And, and a nuclear a nuclear weapon is, you know, 96 percent. So uh, we that can't have the same kind of uh, we can't have the same kind of explosive properties, but we can blend down that uranium, which we did throughout uh, the, the the 90s and early 2000s, and we literally put uh, to you know we we eliminated 21,000 warheads and instead took that uranium and turned on the, the the lights in Charlotte, in New York City, in Chicago, and uh, Miami. So uh, cool. it's really been a great uh, uh, step, and I think also a strong uh, America in terms of nuclear technology and nuclear leadership allows us to have a seat at the table in terms of nonproliferation and, uh, you know, providing peaceful uses of nuclear energy for countries and, uh, you know, discouraging the, the, uh, you know, military applications. So uh, now this may, this may seem very, very basic to you and great information, by the way, thank you for that. But I wanted you to back up a little bit because you said something that really struck me as profound, and perhaps I should have been aware of this. You mentioned the difference between the nuclear energy within a bomb compared yeah. to lighting a power plant. Yeah. Kind of talk a little bit about that because that's that's really dispels this whole mythology yeah. of, and, and yeah. maybe not mythology, but truth. Set. Yeah. So uranium, uh, as it occurs in the earth and okay. uranium deposits throughout the Western United States and around the world, uh, the U-235 isotope, which is what uh, is the ingredient you need to, to uh, sustain the fission process. Okay. And that comes in a natural level of 0.7%. So when we mine the uranium and, and we refine it, convert it to a gas, we want to put it in a centrifuge to increase that U-235 concentration to 5%. Um, and, and again, that's just enough for the uranium to fission to create heat. But it not, comes out at 7% and you reduce it to 5%? Uh, 0.7%. So we need 0.7. to okay. enrich it up to 5%. And Okay. You know, to sustain a, a nuclear explosion, you're up in the 96%. So, one, that's a good wow. thing because the, the enrichment process is very complicated and costly and is a barrier to entry to, to people that would want to go down that path. But you see folks like Iran uh, and, and North Korea, you know, going down that path. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a far cry from a, a power plant uh, basically boiling water from uh, heated fuel assemblies from, from that five percent enrichments than the 96 percent enrichments that you see now uh yeah it, it's uh, uh very much the industry these days is is about uh electricity and essentially boil it's a different way to boil water to create steam yeah. to turn <laughs> a turbine yeah if you keep it simple like that absolutely yeah. um the uh you know this this has really been fascinating and i feel like i've got a uh 
drink water out of a fire hose. Um, so much of this is just normalcy for you and your background and your understanding. And I'm, you've cleared up so many, so many things within my mind and hopefully for our listeners. Mm-hmm. What, um, what are, what, is there a way for people to invest in uranium? I mean, if that's where the, where we are going, and I don't think yeah. anybody would agree, disagree with that. I mean, I, I drive a Tesla for crying out loud, let's not run out of energy. Uh, yeah. what, what, um, what would you share with them as far as the ability to invest in uranium, for instance? Yeah. So, um, you know, when it comes to investing in uranium, you have, you know, this, this mega trend, which is obviously driving uh, the, the, the demand for uranium. We're back to pre-Fukushima levels of nuclear generation worldwide. We're, we're growing in, in, in new reactors. But uh, you also have to look at just the nuts and bolts of supply and demand as you would with copper or, or any commodity. And we've gone through a very um, extreme bear market over the last 10 years where Fukushima did impact demand and it did impact supplies to a point where uranium prices went to a very low level, uh, went from $70 a pound down to $17 a pound. And uh, you know, well below what uh, was needed to incentivize new production. Sure. And so here we are today. Demand is back to, to pre-Fukushima levels, uh, but we're still producing probably forty to sixty million pounds a year below global consumption. We consume one hundred and eighty-five million pounds of uranium uh, around the globe to make electricity, and we're producing from mines at a rate 40 to 60 million pounds a year below that and have done so for the last four years. COVID made it even worse because the nuclear power plants were essential services and ran 24 seven throughout the whole pandemic, but mines were impacted as much as 50% of global production was impacted uh, at the height of the pandemic. So we have a wonderful supply and demand uh, story and it would be you could overlay that if that story applied to cotton or copper or orange futures or it would be just as compelling but in this case it's it's uranium and so where uh, investors would look to is is to be able to invest in the uranium story because we need new mine production uh, demand is strong but we need to advance mines in the United States Canada Africa Australia um, uh, Kazakhstan these are all countries where where uranium is produced. And we're not producing enough of it uh, going forward. So uh, we're already seeing the uranium price moving from that low of $17 a pound in 2016 to doubling to essentially around $32, $33 today. But we still needed to go to about $40, $50 a pound to really uh, stimulate that new production. And so uh, unlike copper or gold, which is a much more efficient market where there are mines that will come on much quicker with higher prices and come off more quickly. Uranium is a little bit less efficient and it's a lot harder to bring on a uranium mine quickly. Mm-hmm. And they tend to take them off more slowly because of the hedged contracts that are a feature in our, our business. So uh, I guess the, the, you know, the, what I would uh, recommend is looking at companies. I mean, my two companies are great examples. Uranium Energy Corp is a U.S. uranium miner and developer out of Corpus Christi, Texas. We have very straightforward, uh, what's called in-situ recovery mines. These are uh, mines that even environmentalists can love because they're not uh, extensive open pit, underground drilling, blasting, waste rock, mill tailings. We're actually going into the sandstone 
and reversing the natural process to extract the uranium as a solution out of the sandstone and pump it to the surface. So it's become about 50, 60% of global production. Uh, we have the, the biggest uh, positions uh, down in, in South Texas, which is one of the most prospective uranium districts in the world, but we're also in Wyoming as well. So uh, we're a NYSE traded company and the ticker symbol UEC. And you can go on our website and, and see you know, what, what we're doing to, to develop uh, and mine uranium. Uranium Royalty Corp, my other hat that I wear, is a capital provider to mine developers, not only in the United States, but around the world. And we have a portfolio of 16 royalties in uh, developments and mines that allow investors to participate in production of uranium through royalties and streams. And we also are able to provide capital to, to bring those mines into production. So um, it is an interesting market. You don't have hundreds of ways to, per, uh, to invest in uranium. There's probably you know, 10 or 20 really good investable names, in my opinion, that, that uh, you know, that's a lot of capital going through a very small number of doors. Mm. So uh, you know, you've seen already a very significant uh, appreciation of, of the uranium equities. I think uh, UEC is up 500% from its COVID uh, low of last year, but we're still very much in the early innings of a uranium recovery. Uh, uranium prices is really only started to move, and uh, you know the growth in reactors is just you know really underway now. So I think you haven't missed anything if you haven't invested in uranium. But it is one of these commodities like copper, or you know we're we're in a commodity super cycle in my opinion, and our supply and demand fundamentals are probably as compelling as any other commodity uh, out there right now. You know, at, at the first thing that comes to mind is 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 this concept of uh, reusing the old old uranium, if you will. Mm -hmm. Is that is that is that like not profitable? Is it too expensive to do that to make it worthwhile? Or do you have unending yeah. supplies of uranium in the in the rock still? Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think the real uh, barrier to that being uh, advanced more than it is. Uh, certainly, France being the the champion of, of reprocessing. I think it's a victim of low uranium prices. It's just cheaper to mine uranium and 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 store the waste in a repository than it is to reprocess. But I think we have to think. Uh, you know, we have to think in fifty hundred thousand year terms. And you know, we recycle everything in our society. Uh, why wouldn't we recycle spent fuel? There's still 80% of the energy still in there. So even if a, a facility like Yucca Mountain in Nevada is built, it's in my opinion, it should be a retrievable storage, not a permanent, uh, mm -hmm. because we may find ourselves 100 years from now that the magical unicorn hasn't brought us abundant electricity, and we have to look at every possible method that we can to produce electricity. That fuel could be an enormous resource down the road. So I think... Um, you know, that's, that's how we need to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And these, these portable, these smaller units you were talking about, is that like something that would run a, a large company, a Google company, for instance, or a small city or what capacity do those have? It, it can be, it can be both. Um, I, I had a meeting yesterday through Colorado School of Mines with a company called Ultra Safe Nuclear, which is demonstrating a micro reactor uh, it's up to, I think, 10 to 15 megawatts. Um, and the design for that is remote locations, communities, 
and mining operations, say in Northern Ontario, Quebec, Northwest Territories, mm. um, where uh, the cost of electricity of diesel oil being shipped on ice roads to these mines in the far north, diamond mines, gold mines, uh, silver, zinc, uh, uranium mines, uh, is just prohibitive and it's getting harder with uh, the climate changing and the ice roads have uh, shorter uh, months of the year to, to get uh, supplies up and back. So we're looking at those 5, 10, 15 megawatt reactors for mining applications. Uh, but the 50, 100 megawatt reactors, uh, you know, certainly can be built in a scalable manner. Uh, uh, I would encourage you to look at a project in southern Idaho that's being developed between the Department of Energy and New Scale. A uh, very uh, innovative company that's building these uh, 100 megawatt scalable units, which uh, can be built up to 12 in 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 a in a, uh, one station, but uh, in this case can power southern Idaho and much of Utah as part of their electric grid. And you probably wonder, well, why would uh, electric utility companies in Utah sign up for such a project, which they have? Uh, they can't use coal anymore because of the clean air mandates. Uh, it just is, even though they could, uh, they, they can't by, by law and just societal pressures. Gas is always an option for electricity and is a really great way to make electricity when gas is cheap. But you saw what happened during the, the Texas cold spell. And when gas prices spike, you price electricity out of the, out of the means of, of businesses and, and individuals. So they can't rely too much on gas. They could go down the renewable route, but because Utah sits next to California, who already have so much renewables on their grid, California is either spinning off excess electricity when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing from renewables, or they're sucking energy from six states surrounding uh, California. And so they already got too much intermittent supply on their grid. So nuclear was the option for them, which can provide baseload, but also scale up and down to fit the, the, the neighboring uh, renewable energy fluxes that, that they see out of California. So um, it's just, you know, you could look at the applications. Hawaii in 2021 is producing most of its electricity from diesel oil, which is shipped in by tankers. Um, one, it's incredibly dirty, it's expensive, and it's not really a, a way to make electricity in 2021. Puerto Rico with enormous energy challenges and, and delivering electricity. These small modular reactors with a very small footprint, um, you know, could power much of, of these island needs, but uh, they can also be sited in, in larger grids as, as uh, you know, inter, in, uh, incremental supplies. Now, if you're India or China, you need baseload power in massive quantities. You're going to continue to build 15, 1600 megawatt units, but maybe in some of these more developed markets or specialized markets, a 50, 100 megawatt reactor is a better fit. Wow. How, how op that, that is such optimism. I mean, in the sense of, of a bright future. Um, you know, there's so many questions I wanna ask you and we've run out of time, but I, but I want you to, um, to share with the audience what you'd like them to take away from the work that you do and what you see coming in the future um, so that they can put this into the right perspective? Sure. Well, Larry, I, you know, I think uh, much of the, uh, of the life lessons that I've learned is being in the mining business, uh, resource business for the last 37 years. And, and if you talk to your friends and neighbors, whether they're in oil and gas or copper or uranium or anything else, 
one thing you'll learn is the cyclicality of commodities. We're either mm-hmm. producing too much and prices you know, drop or we're not producing enough and you go through these boom and bust cycles. But it's also taught me as an as a, as a executive to really embrace you know, those down cycles and, and really be patient and persevere through the down cycles and really you know, look at it as an opportunity like we have at Uranium Energy Corp. Um, you know, in the period since Fukushima, our company has grown dramatically because we were able to go in and see value where others didn't. And we've been able to pick up assets at 10 cents on the dollar, permit them, license them, do drill them and prepare them for production while we have the luxury of time and the downturn of a market. In mining, great mining companies are, are defined by not what they do when you're when commodity prices are high. It's too late. It's like the farmer. You can't sow you know, seeds and grow more at harvest time. You have to have been, you know, that, that's got to be done well in advance of harvest. And the same is true in mining. So we've really embraced that to grow our company and prepare, you know, not only our company, but our shareholders for to benefit when, when commodities inevitably always cycle. That's one thing that we know that uh, no commodity will stay down forever and no commodity will go up forever. So we're prepared to kind of um, uh, meet that cyclicality and, and, and really profit and, and, and thrive under that. But it also is life lessons too. And that, you know, even if you're the most blessed person in the world, and I feel like I'm one of them, um, life throws at you challenges and, and downturns. And it's how we're defined as people is how we deal with that. And it's not easy at times, but I think if we, uh, we look at those downturns as, as, as something that, challenges that we can, you know, stay focused, stay positive, stay engaged, don't feel sorry for ourselves, but see, okay, how do I, how do I take this and make an opportunity out of it? We'll all be better people for it. So it's something that's worked in the mining business and the uranium industry specifically, and uh, certainly has some life lessons as well for us personally. Boy, oh boy, we could certainly peel that in onion. Um, That was wonderful. And, uh, you are really a breath of fresh air. I, uh, I am very much appreciative of you taking the time, Scott. And, and uh, I know how valuable your time is, but sharing with us to give us a new fresh perspective on what a positive influence nuclear energy can be in all of our lives. And, and when handled in the way that you've described and with the laws that have been put into place, you know, we're probably in no danger of, of seeing any of these, these explosive media events or new movies on it of how tragic it could be because it's nothing but positivity yeah and you very much reflect that and i i thank you so much for being on my show i would love to go now into another segment on on how the mind works and how you've been able to transition through your your downsides but uh, we may have to do that in a future show no that would be great larry and and if people are interested in in our company uraniumenergy.com as our website, you can see what we're doing in Texas, Wyoming, and uraniumroyalty.com. Uh, but also go on uh, the, the World Nuclear Association website out of London uh, or the Nuclear Energy Institute out of the United States, and you can really learn a lot more about nuclear energy and uh, all the advantages that it brings to our, our grid going forward. Well, thank you, Larry. It's been a pleasure to, to spend some time with you. Well, you as well. Have a great rest of your week, and uh, keep, uh, keep us lit. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we ask that you please subscribe and share with your friends and associates. Larry's next guest, Christina Walls, is as bold as she is delightful.
She shares her passion for land investing while coaching others to passionately live the life they desire. She may ask this of you. What is the price you are paying for not following your dreams?